0: Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. There are three words that have similar meanings and can be considered synonyms. According to Merriam-Webster, to ponder means to weigh in the mind, to appraise, to think or consider, especially quietly, soberly, and deeply. To ruminate means to To go over in the mind repeatedly, and often casually or slowly. To chew repeatedly for an extended period. To engage in contemplation or meditation. To muse means to become absorbed in thought. To think about something carefully and thoroughly. To wonder or marvel. To enter a state of deep thought or dreamy abstraction. My guest today, Guy Sales, is an A1 first-class ponderer, ruminator, and muser. I could call Guy a philosopher, but he would imitate Edward Munch's painting, The Scream. If I identified him with my lot, that is, as a theologian, he'd wretch, and I wouldn't blame him for that. If I said he was a sage, you'd get to hear a preacher cuss. So I will stick with these less categorical terms that have more creative definition and latitude, and, to borrow the phrase from Anne of Anne of Green Gables, that provide more scope for the imagination. A category or title Guy would, without hesitation, fully embrace is one who loves God Indeed, all of his ponderings, ruminations, and musings are manifestations of his love of God and arise in response to God who is and does love. Guy is a speaker, congregational consultant, professor, writer, blogger, and has most recently been pastor, one who seeks to enable congregations to encounter the God who is and does love. One of the best places to have access to Guy's ponderings, ruminations, and musings is his blog, From the Intersection, where he offers his thoughts about the intersections where life meets faith and meaning meets culture, those connecting points and crossroads of our experiences. You can read Guy's blog at fromtheintersection.org. Guy is here today to help me and us to reflect upon the pandemic and post-pandemic lessons and opportunities. Well, welcome Guy, thank you for being with me today. Thank you, David, I've been looking forward to this. Why don't we begin by letting you kind of start with, when you began ministry, um, how did you perceive what ministry was? How did you perceive your role as a minister? Uh, And what did you see was the purpose of the church?
1: Well, I'm aware now that I began ministry before I had any business beginning ministry. (laughs) Uh, I was interim pastor of a little church outside Statesboro, Georgia, during my senior year of uh, college at Georgia Southern University College then. Um, And then Anita, my wife, and I went to Southern Seminary in 1978, and it wasn't long until I became pastor of uh, Tunnel Road Christian Church in New Albany, Indiana. Uh, And so at that time, I would have to say that my understanding of ministry had primarily to do with ministry to individuals, you know, that that the purpose was to provide pastoral care to individuals, to help individuals uh, make commitments to Christ and grow in their commitments to Christ and to to um, help individuals in their relationships, it was very much a focus on person-by-person ministry. Of course, I understood that the church had to be healthy as a community, but the health of the community was primarily so that it could help nurture um, individuals. I was really naive about uh, sort of the collective, communal, corporate uh, dimensions of, of ministry at that time. I also had, though, um, uh, an understanding of ministry that I was trying to grow into. And in some ways, I've spent the rest of my ministry trying to grow into. Ernest Campbell, who was the preaching minister at the Riverside Church in New York, came to Southern uh, and did the Mullins Lectures on Preaching. And I enjoyed them all, but in one of his lectures, uh, he talked about how some of us who were hearing him thought the highest and best use of our gifts might be in theological education, you know, to go to graduate school and teach in seminary. And I had given some thought to that. And then he said, some of you will think the highest and best use of your ministry gifts would be uh, to be a pastoral counselor. And that was one of the focuses at, uh, at Southern at that time. So that had crossed my mind. He said, I'd like to invite some of you to consider being a a pastoral theologian on the front line uh, by being a pastor. And I remember, I can can sense it to this day, kind of a sense of that's it. That's what I should be and do, is to try to be a pastoral theologian on the front line. So even though I didn't have that fully worked out, and maybe still don't, uh, that was also in the mix of how I understood ministry. But primarily, it was about caring for the individual members who were part of the church and helping the church to care for others in, in the same way. Well, So how did you, how have you changed over time? Well, the first church I served out of seminary uh, in Southwest central Georgia um, was a mill village church, a cotton mill village church. I, I didn't know what that meant. I had grown up in the uh, metropolitan Atlanta area I had been born in West Virginia. I knew about coal mining uh, churches, but I didn't know about Mill Village churches. And I I went to that uh, congregation. There were some lovely people there, some really lovely and loving people there. But I ran up against racism uh, pretty quickly. I was in the um, office of the church one day, and I got a call. And the voice on the other end said, uh, Reverend Sales, this is the Reverend Mark, Mac Charles Jones. I'm the pastor of the First Baptist Church on Fannin Street here in LaGrange. And he said, that's not the First Baptist Church you know. Mm-hmm. That's the African American, he said, black at that time. That's the black First Baptist Church. I'm the pastor there. I hear you're new in town. And I just wanted you to know that for years now the ku klux klan has been demonstrating in their robes on the town square in lagrange one saturday a month and we've never had a white minister come and stand with us Mm. and i just thought you should know and i hung up the phone and excuse me but this is what i said to myself i said well damn now i know yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know so i began to go stand uh, with them. Uh, our friendship, my friendship with Mac became controversial and I ran into sort of more collective expressions of racism. I, I had always thought racism was just being individually unkind uh, to black people. And certainly was committed to being kind. You know, I, I had no real understanding of those systemic dimensions. And so that was the beginning of my awareness that uh, sinfulness, if we want to put it that way, was a lot more complicated than just individual choices, individual behavior. And so that began to get me thinking about systems and collectives and communities and the influence of history in ways that I'd not really thought before.
0: Well, what about, uh, because, you know, along the same lines uh, for us was the, uh, uh, inclusion of women in ministry? That one had started a little sooner for me because
1: my wife, Anita, was called to ministry as well. Uh, even though she'd grown up in a a fundamentalist church that told her she couldn't be called to ministry, she felt called to ministry and was enrolled in seminary. But I remember there was a kind of um, uh, uh, the rooster crows moment for me in seminary about women in ministry. I was in a I forget what it was called, but it was a formation for ministry group of some kind, and there were about ten of us in that group, and one of them was a woman. Her name was Karen, and I thought of myself as enlightened and you know progressive and all of that when it came to the women's issue, and uh, there were some people in the class who who thought that it was fine for Karen to be in seminary, but didn't think she should ever serve on a church staff. And we were having a, a, conversation about all of that, and and with a great deal of, <laughs> of unwarranted pride, I said uh, to the class, "Well, Karen, uh, you know if if I were pastor of a church, uh, I would be honored to have you serve on my staff." And that's when the rooster crowed because I thought, "That's not that's not good enough." And so what I said was, "I'm sorry, Karen." What I should say is, if you were the pastor of a church, I'd be honored to serve on your church. Staff. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so, yeah. But that, so I had all that to say, I had begun to shift some on that issue and certainly was committed to not being racist. I just thought it was about individual attitudes, actions, and behaviors, uh, just naive about the systems mm. that were in play.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that um, you and I both encountered because uh, we came to this area about the same time, and the impact of the decline um, of major denominations and uh things were happening at that time um how did how did How did you experience that first Asheville, and perceive the the reasons for that well, and that
1: that in it also was another instance of becoming aware of the small p political collective corporate dimensions of things that can go wrong with us and can go wrong with churches and church-related organizations. So uh, being in the Southern Baptist Convention, I mean, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and you know, went to a Southern Baptist seminary, and uh, when I came to First Asheville, it was still technically... Uh, Although very nominally affiliated with the Southern Baptist right. Convention, but uh, you know the the presenting issue, the the ostensible issue uh, in all those controversies in the seventies and eighties among Baptists was about the Bible and the authority of the Bible. Uh, it felt to me like um, a push pull for you know who's in charge, and as and as time has unfolded, it seems like. What was true denominationally has become true nationally. You know, that as people lose a sense of their power, uh, they want to, to take control of things that they might feel that they can control uh, to compensate for things that they can't. And I, so I experienced it that way. You know, theological issues were used. Now I'm sure there were some people who really had theological issues, but theological issues were used and exploited. Uh, to either gain or regain uh, control of institutions and
0: power. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and, you know, at the time that I came uh, to First Baptist Black Mountain, um, the World War II generation uh, was still alive and thriving. Yeah. uh, and, And everything that they had ever done had succeeded. Yeah. You know, they had won the war. They had uh, come back and, and and created the baby boom and and created uh, the economic uh, boom that cre- you know created American industry worldwide and and the churches uh, blossomed uh, in number and in budgets uh, you know and, and just... Everything they did, they felt like they could succeed and they never could grasp that when a new generation came along, the new generation might want to do their own creativity. Yeah. And they might want a little something different. Yeah. And, um, and so trying to negotiate the generational shift. Yes. Um, yeah. Was a, was a, a hard thing to mediate, um, I don't know about how y'all did.
1: Well, the generational thing was was difficult, and then there was a cultural thing that, uh, that was fed by, shaped by, denominationalism. So, you know, the, um, I, and it happened for more or less good reasons, but the Southern Baptist Convention, that one way to think about it, had become sort of a franchise operation, and every church could buy you know, programs (laughs) and identities and books and lessons and all that from headquarters. And so every small and large Southern Baptist church across the South, no matter how different they might be in other ways, looked enough like the others that you could recognize them as as part of the same tribe. Right. And um, what happened was when there began to be theological issues or generational issues, The default had become well. What does the convention say? What's the program that we should buy, use, um, implement? And there wasn't a lot of local theological reflection on mission and ministry. It was just kind of the same wherever you know. Great commission, great compassion. Nothing wrong with that, right? Uh, That's a that's a great place to start. But how to do it in a particular place among a certain group of people? Across generations, that was not something we did. Uh, we just took the
0: programs.
1: Uh,
0: I've been, I've been particularly after uh, we read what too long. Yeah, uh, in Terry Hamrick's class, um, I've been pondering the degree to which the decline um, has has is linked. To the colonial, imperial, white supremacist legacy, um, in your mind, are they linked, and in what way? The decline of denominations. Denominations. Yeah. And, and, and there being more uh, people coming out uh, rejecting church, uh, rejecting mainline uh, institutional expressions of faith— uh, the nuns, yeah. those kind of things.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think, I, I do think that um, the nuns and others who are disillusioned by the churches they have known are a big part of are a big part of uh, what's happening. You know, the churches, people are leaving churches. It used to be that when people left churches, they left to go to other churches, yeah. and now I see people. Leaving or leaving may not even be the right term. Becoming inactive and not going anywhere uh, because they are either exhausted or because they're disillusioned. And I think the disillusionment has has to do with um, the um, the controversy, at least, over issues like the one you've named, you know, um, and others as as well. I also think that uh, that you know when. Uh, when we didn't get out of the way or when our parents didn't get out of the way to let younger voices shape the church, they went and started their own. Yeah, they did. And and some of them are thriving, some are not. Some are thriving out of loyalty to uh, a kind of nationalism that I find um, unacceptable, but they're thriving as places where people are. Yeah. Um,
0: I remember distinctly— um, Going towards Swannanoa, uh for a while back when um, DVDs and VHS movies, you know, when they still had movie stores and you right. <laughs> didn't get everything off of Netflix. Um, and it was, it was after Easter. Um, and I was standing close to the front looking uh, at a movie and, and, and overheard uh, the woman behind the desk, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, I guess, soft drink distributor had come in and to drop off some soft drinks and and uh, and she said uh, did you go to church on Easter because it used to be if you didn't go any anytime you at least went, really least went yeah and and he said no and she said I didn't either nobody does oh wow anymore huh uh, and that that was a that was a really marked point in my mind mm. uh, of how people were just no longer... Finding what they needed. And that's Swannanoa, North Carolina, a stone's
1: throw from the Billy Graham Training Center. Right. <laughs> you know? That's right. Yeah. And to say, for her perception to be, nobody does anymore. Yeah. That's powerful. And yeah. we're talking several years ago.
0: That's right. That's You know, it's been at least 10. Yeah. Uh, you know, or more uh, that that occurred. Uh, and, and so that um, that shaped how I tried to do ministry differently mm-hmm. from that point. Um, but like I say the older the older generation uh, just wasn't there yet. Uh, and as you said, uh, the younger generation felt like we don't have to fight with these people mm-hmm. anymore. Right. Yeah. We can we can go and and create our own mm-hmm. alternative. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did.
1: Yeah, and I and I think that you, you know sometimes we have not not you, but sometimes people have reduced reduced that to differences in worship style and music and that sort of thing. I, I think it has as much to do with being an authentic local indigenous expression of the body of Christ. You know, for the people you are and the people that you seek to include, and having a, you know, being able to communicate a sense, this matters. We're not just doing programs. You know, we have a passion for things that matter. And I I think that was a hard thing for people who had been successful at programming to accept that that wasn't enough, that successful programming isn't enough and that they're not successful anymore. So what
0: was the, what was the... Challenge or vision that you had in wanting to come to First Asheville.
1: Well, I I believed that then and still believe that First Asheville has First Baptist Asheville has had and has the opportunity still to be a church downtown that serves its immediate neighborhood, but also serves the region. That it had a role to play because of its history because of its location, because of the size of the city, uh, had a role to play in helping to shape um, the spiritual life of the community. And, and that, was, that was clear to me even before I came here, based on the people I met and you know, the history that I knew. But my first Sunday was uh, September 9, 2001, and on September 11th, 2001, the staff and I were slated to go away for a staff retreat. And instead, you know, 9-11 became right. 9-11. Right. And I, I literally did not know my way around the building yet. But by that night, we were opening the sanctuary to anybody who wanted to come and pray. And the place was packed. People were sitting in the windowsills. And that happened for three nights in a row. Mm-hmm. And of course, the main thing that that taught me was this is this this crisis that has occurred is uh, a, a source of grief and pain, and we need to be together to lament. That was the first thing. But the second thing it did for me was confirm, you know, that if in six hours, you know, this we can from the time we announce until the time we have the prayer service, this place is packed, you know. The idea is this church does have some sort of role. I had no idea what it would be. Uh, well, a little bit of an idea, but not much of an idea of what it would be. You know, it, but the church had a role to play in the community and in the region. And that's what brought me here uh, was that sense that this church can, uh, can sort of not be exclusively because other churches do as well, but be part of a, the heart and soul. Of uh, the region.
0: Well, you talked about um, being a theologian on the front line. Yeah. So how did that how did that play into this? And what what, what how did you try to be theologian? Well, I, um, I I tried to
1: practice a kind of discernment, you know, a theological intellectual, but also emotional, spiritual discernment of. Those places where the culture and the rule and reign of God touch each other, intersect uh, with each other, and to articulate you know in ways that I thought would would be helpful what I saw in the places where the culture and the kingdom the reign of God touched each other, and invite our church, which I was clear wasn 't the kingdom but a servant of the kingdom, <laughs> to invite our church to engage with the culture on behalf of the rule and reign of God. Uh, but I felt like we needed to have a, a theological understanding, not, not instead of, but in addition to, a sociological understanding and a, you know a cultural understanding, but a theological understanding of what might be going on, what, what God might be up to uh, in those places where culture and kingdom touched each other.
0: And that's that's been a part of what your podcast is. I'm not your podcast, my, but your blog. Your blog yeah. yeah,
1: it's called it's called from the intersection for that reason. And that, that little phrase uh, from the intersection occurred to me while I was uh, well when I got to First Baptist. We were still on AM radio live mm. at eleven o'clock, and so my job every Sunday was to climb the little crow's uh, uh, step, crow's nest steps up to the sound booth where it was then. And meet with the radio engineer and record an intro and an outro. Oh, yeah. yeah. Know. And my typical way of doing that for the intro was to say First Baptist Church is located at the intersection of 240 and Charlotte Street in downtown Asheville. And I'd done that for about a month or so after coming here. You know, so four or five Sundays. I was also teaching the book of Ephesians on Wednesday night. And I had just been teaching the Wednesday before this particular Sunday, uh, the opening verses where Paul says, you know, to the, to the saints who are in Ephesus and in Christ Jesus, you know, in their culture and in Jesus. So I'm climbing the crow's nest and kind of rehe- up to the crow's nest, rehearsing in my mind, First Baptist Church located at the intersection of I-240 and Charlotte Street in downtown Asheville. It struck me, you know, that's true. And we're also at the intersection of our culture uh, and the kingdom. And that's when that crystallized for me. And that became my understanding of, of what we were about. Our mission statement eventually became at the intersection of our culture and the kingdom of God. We are a community of faith uh, centered on Jesus and committed to his purposes in the world. And then it went on from there.
0: Well, how, how do you see that interaction? uh, as, as, as you've been here.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, in a, uh, yeah, in a variety of ways. I mean, that interaction takes a variety of forms, you know, cause there are, there are some religious groups, some Christian groups who, who only come into the intersection, you know, with the equivalent of an armored personnel carrier, you know, they, they come in, <laughs> they, they come barreling into town, shouting how bad it is, you know, at the intersection and warning people that if they stay there, they're going to get hurt, you know, and, and then on the other extreme, probably there are people who come into the intersection and, you know, don't ever raise their voice to, to affirm or object to anything, you know? And, and so, uh, so, um, my view of it was and is that, we can engage what we see happening at the intersection, and we can engage it in ways that affirm that there are a lot of jesus like things happening in the culture. Sometimes they happen because people are consciously aware that they're doing them in response to Jesus, but sometimes not you know i it doesn't really matter to me in one way why you feed hungry people if you're doing if you're feeding hungry people for reasons that have to do with love and and justice, then that's Jesus' kind of work, whether you're doing it in Jesus' name or not. You know, and if you're building houses, you know, that kind of thing. So I felt like the church could affirm and participate and partner with people who were doing Jesus-like things wherever they happened. And then we, if there were things we needed to raise questions about, we could raise them in the way he did, you know, which is raise them not to uh, blanket people with judgment, but raise them to say, have you thought about, you know, how this might be, how we might approach this in a way that would help people be more whole, you know, more loving, make our community more just and peaceful. So I see it happening in a variety of ways. Uh I, I don't think I you can tell by the way I've described it, I don't have much, I, I don't have much uh good to say. <laughs> about the just come shout about how bad everything is. You know, I, I think that's first of all, not Jesus way. And secondly, I think it's ineffective.
0: Well, if, if, if you've characterized being a theologian mm-hmm. on the front line, uh, how is the interplay for you between belief and behavior? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when I, when I interviewed, um, Rob Sellers in my last episode, yeah. um, it, part of the pilgrimage that that you know Rob had made was was um, coming to see uh, Jesus Way more from a from an ethical pathway, mm-hmm. uh, a behavioral pathway than from a propositional. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 I know and, and, and deservedly so. Theology gets beaten up a lot yeah. and, and should. Uh, but if 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 we don't believe enough in the truth we get Donald Trump yeah yeah um so how do how does the how do the two for you interweave well it's a great question and I and
1: and I'll start at an answer I, I this is not a complete answer I'll <laughs> tell you that before I before I even dive into it but I, I think for me uh Theology is crucial. I mean, I, I think bad theology leads to bad lives. You know, I, I think there is no disconnect uh, between badly shaped understandings of what it means to be human, which for me are very similar to badly shaped understandings of who God is, and, and badly shaped ways of living. You know, we, we live as we think things are. And then the way we live shapes the way things are in kind of a reciprocal uh, relationship. So theology matters. The issue of truth, um, I'm coming more and more to understand that truth, as I understand the Christian approach to it, is about a person. It's personal. Uh, Jesus said, I am the truth. And he's... Notorious, in my experience, for eluding definition, you know? He he just, he refuses to be contained in propositions. But the truth of his life, and and the truth, in my view, that he makes known to us about God, uh, um, for me, is all wrapped up in, in what he did. You know, so identity and action, being and doing, weren't separate in him. And so I think my understanding of truth is a personal kind of truth. And so I would, I would say that we shape our behavior. If we shape our behavior in Jesus-like ways, then we're going to have a pretty keen appreciation of Jesus, whether we have yet made a confession of faith in him or not. You know, um, I, I think that's inevitable. Uh, so, and I also believe that as a Christian theologian, Christian pastor, I don't have to solve all that. You know, my, my job is to present Jesus as truthfully and winsomely as I can invite people to shape their lives around his reality and not be involved in harsh judgment of other approaches to faith and just let God take care of the rest. And, and I don't, I don't mean that as a dodge. I just mean, I, I can't figure all that out. You know, I remember Henry and said, um, not everyone who goes by the way of Jesus, he was riffing on John 14, not everyone who <laughs> goes by the way of Jesus knows his name. Right. Yeah. And you know, I'm comfortable with that from within inside a Christian perspective. I get it that other people wouldn't resonate to that way of saying it. But for me, that's the way I, I, I don't have any need to correct somebody else's worldview, you, you know, of another religion. Um, but I do have a need to say, if your Jesus, uh, if the Jesus you hold on to uh, is a Jesus who could never have spoken and lived the Sermon on the Mount, never spoken or lived, Father forgive them, they know not what they do, uh, never spoken or lived, welcome you know, the marginalized and the excluded, Then, then the Jesus you're connected to isn't a truthful Jesus from my standpoint. So there are... There are truth judgments to be made there, you know, and if following him doesn't lead to fruit of the Spirit and gifts of love, you know, then I think we've misunderstood him.
0: That's really good. I like that description. Um, so what has the pandemic uh, exposed to us?
1: yeah. So much, I think, and uh, I—it's a—it's a long list. Um, but even before the pandemic, I, I thought that I—I I thought that American culture—and I should say American cultures, because there's way more than one U.S. American culture. But I think across those cultures, uh, even before the pandemic, I was seeing you know, the insidious effects of, uh, kind of exaggerated individualism and, um, and, uh, violence, you know, verbal and otherwise, um, consumerism, you know, those kinds of things were rampantly, uh, in play and having corrosive effects on individuals, communities, and churches. And I, I think the pandemic uh, has has simply heightened intensified and made unavoidable the ideas that we cannot live uh, on our own and alone mm-hmm. you know, we are interdependent, like it or not, we are interdependent my health depends on yours um, uh, you know if 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 i can 't get food at the grocery store you can't either right (laughs) you know uh, we depend on people whose names we don't know to grow and harvest and package and truck and deliver and sell us food you know we're we're interdependent so I, i i think the individualism of our culture has been shown to be more of a problem The excessive individualism, the exaggerated individualism has been shown to be more of a problem. And, you know, Americans were already lonely. You know, this was something that was written about a lot before the pandemic. We were already lonely people. Right, right. Uh, The isolation we experienced during the pandemic intensified our awareness of loneliness. And loneliness is the emotional component to the individualism that that we think, you know, people have either wanted to be left alone or feared that they've been left alone. And in either case, um, the pandemic has shown that we can't live that, we cannot live that way. We have to live in ways that are interdependent uh, with each other. Um, I I think the pandemic has, has shown us it's been an apocalyptic kind of thing you know it it has made known it has revealed p- pulled back the curtain on these disparities in healthcare uh, that we experience on uh systemic racism or white body supremacy whatever however you want to d- describe it um so i in, in some ways i think the pandemic has revealed both what is most um damaging about our culture and also most hopeful uh about our culture. I don't know if that makes sense or not. But, no, I do. I, yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: because part of you know in throughout the pandemic and in the midst of the pandemic, uh people stepped up. Yeah, exactly. Uh they supported their churches. Right. Uh and despite having trouble with their jobs or, or whatever, they managed to find a way and, and managed to give. Mm-hmm. Um and so and, and, and then the creative things uh, right. you know that churches have done right uh, somehow to create community through zoom, you know right right um, and, and, and things like that uh, has shown, as you said, a, a kind of a hopeful dimension mm-hmm. right uh, that going into this, I was concerned about. yeah yeah me. And, and you know, the fact that the scientific community was
1: able to research and develop these vaccines despite, a lack of support and cooperation in many sectors that's incredible yeah you know we're yeah well it's 15 16 months post that day in march of 20 when we had to start quarantining right and and you know here we are with these vaccines available people aren't taking them in the numbers i would like but <laughs> but are available you know that's a, that's a remarkable thing yes it is yeah, it's a remarkable thing um and I think for churches, the pandemic provides an opportunity. I'm, I'm, really, I'm not exactly sure we're going to take it, but it provides an opportunity to step back and ask ourselves, what is most essential about being a Christian community uh, in our time and place? Uh, because, you know, for all these months, we unlearned many of the habits of participation that we had. Right. Right. And you know, the old Winston Churchill thing that I'm paraphrasing about, you know, you dare not waste a good crisis, (laughs) you know. This crisis has interrupted the flow of normal, habitual church life. And this could be an opportunity, even as we're regathering, to say, "Let's, let's hold our regathering lightly and be sure we stop to ask, you know, what have we lost? What have we gained? And most significantly, I think, what are we learning about what it means to be human, what it means to be church uh, now? Because I I was reading um, a New Yorker article uh, a few days ago, and it was just a brief snippet about Denny Meyer. Denny Meyer is the um, CEO of the Union Square Hospitality Group in New York, kind of one of the leading restaurateurs in New York. And... Uh, he was at his Union Square Cafe, which was his first his first big success as a restaurateur. And he was talking to his executive chef, and he was talking to the reporter. And he said something like, I don't have this exactly, but he said something like, we're not really reopening restaurants. We're opening new ones. Now, they're opening them in the same locations, some with the same personnel, But that idea that we may be in the same place, many of us may be the same people, but we're not exactly reopening. We're opening something new. Uh, I I guess what I think is if if a restaurant group can realize that it's not good enough just to reopen and assume we can be like we were before, I hope churches can
0: as well. Well, You talked about uh, your concern about like whether we seize the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, If we did, Mm -hmm. what does that look like?
1: Well, I think, think first of all, kind of preliminary to or along with seizing the opportunity, we need to realize uh, that a lot of our folks need pastoral care, and that includes the pastors, you know, the people who have, borne a lot of the weight and pressure of leading faith communities during the pandemic. So in this sense, we're all together. You know, people are tired. Mm -hmm. Clergy and lady alike are tired. Uh, People are um, dealing with their own losses, either of loved ones who've actually died to the virus or losses of other things that are significant to them. You know, weddings, birthday parties, vacations, uh, so that people are dealing with a lot of loss. People are dealing with the loneliness that I mentioned. Uh, a lot of people are in job transition, some because they want to be, but some because they they have to be. So I, I think we need to realize that all of us need some care, you know, some, some tending to uh, both what we've lost and what we've learned to hope. So that's kind of not exactly preliminary, but needs to be a feature, I think, for a good long while, longer than we might imagine. You know, mental health statistics tell us that the rates of depression and anxiety in our culture have nearly doubled during the pandemic. People need help, you know, figuring out how to deal with that. So all that to say, uh, I think that kind of care, we need to be really intentional about that kind of care give people places to lament and listen to each other's stories and that kind of thing. But then I think a series of questions, you know, might help us. What what was it actually that sustained us during this time apart? You know, so clearly part of what sustained us was those who were leading us found ways to get us together by, by technology. So that's part of it. And a question that flows from that is, okay, now what's the appropriate role of technology? You know, we... I think for theological reasons, we don't want it to replace the gathered community, but it can nurture and extend the gathered community, people who can't participate in it from time to time. Um, but so what sustained us beyond that, though, beyond the technological gathering? You know, were there what stories helped us? What practices sustained us? Uh and if we don't have answers to those questions then i think that invites us to reevaluate our our ministries of faith formation you know uh, were parents equipped to be the primary uh, faith teachers for their children you know since they couldn't participate in sunday school or, or whatever else um what what was it about our gathered life that we actually missed the most and what does that tell us about what's important Know what I heard early on was I miss my Sunday school class. I miss my prayer group. I miss my and what I heard in that is a vital function of the church is being sure people are connected to smaller groups where they know and are known. You know. So as we look to the future, I think we need to hold on to that idea that one of the most important things we can do. Is be sure that people are connected to smaller groups where they're known and cared for, and they have the chance to know and care for other people. I, I really think that we need to ask questions about whether we have a a sufficient understanding of uh, the possibilities and the limits, um, the gifts, and uh, the problems of institutions you know p- because we've learned that both um, brokenness and grace take collective forms, not just individual forms. So I'm I'm wondering if it might be time to dust off Walter Wink and think about the powers, you know, the collectives that shape who we are and how we behave. And I, I don't think most of us went into the pandemic able to understand how collective realities shape our common life and our life as a church. I would I, agree with that. I, I think I'm all over the map here, David. No, <laughs> no, no. No. Uh you know, and, and I think uh, I think that um you know problems like understanding systemic racism come from the fact that we don't understand systems, not just racism, but systemic. What does it mean for a problem or a possibility to be systemic in nature? What what has to happen in an institution for it to serve the mission and not overwhelm the mission. So I think some reflection on that as well. Um, This was a conversation already in play for many years, but I think learning that mission, that ministries of of charity, of need meeting, are vitally important and always will be. We need more than that. We need justice-making ministries as well. And the pandemic, has revealed that to us. Um, and so how can, how can churches engage that? And then all the, you know, it's not just the pandemic. It's the racial reckoning. It's the political upheaval. It, you know, there's so many things that became visible as the pandemic unfolded that we, I think, need to ask questions about.
0: Well, our time's about up. Uh, one of the things that I've enjoyed observing uh, because both of us having been pastors, I know, uh, that when you're a pastor, you have to be reserved in what you say. And since you are no longer in the church, I've noticed a freedom <laughs> that you can finally say <laughs> what you've always wanted to say. Yeah. um <laughs> uh, and in, in, in so, in what ways has that been for you? Uh, what are you? What are you saying now that you didn't feel like you could fully say as pastor?
1: Well, what I'm aware of is that for years and years and years, uh, in order to, to tell the truth as I understood it, and also to keep the church more or less together as we dealt with the truth, I sort of adopted as my unofficial strategy. Uh, the line from Emily Dickinson's poem: "Tell all the truth, but tell it slant." You know, uh, and so I, I think the biggest change for me is I don't feel the need to slant uh, because I'm not trying to hold a group together. And and I'm and by the way, I think part of my our service to the church now is to be a voice that doesn't have to do that because people who lead inevitably. End up having to worry about pacing and timing, and how far can you stretch at one time? How far can you not? You know, I think that's that's part of the responsibility of a pastor is not to acquiesce to the way things are, but not to blow up the way things are either. You know, so I get that. I'm not being critical of people who are still in that role. It's a hard, hard role. I I think I am being more direct about the systemic nature of uh the problems we face that that it, that it's not that things like toxic masculinity are are, are true and misshape uh n- men you know and that the inordinate expectations we have of uh, uh of women to be you know conform to a certain image misshape uh the w- women um And, you know, the systemic nature of racism, you know, the the whole idea, the whole idea that I have come to accept with grief that um, many times things that are not right are not right, not because the systems aren't working, but they're not right because the systems are working precisely as they were designed to work. And, and I feel freer to call that out than I used to. Yeah.
0: Well, God, thank you. Thank you, David. It's been Your wisdom experience. is always appreciated and, and needed uh, by so many of us, and I'm grateful. Thank you. I am too. Appreciate you, it. You are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father, Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left. Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a nonprofit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. From my mouth, speak your peace. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Bigger words from my mouth.